World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For 40 years, an unusual sociology project has been going on at a small English university. Regular people sending news of their lives and their views. Our correspondent sifts through a uniquely revealing archive of the everyday. And the silver screen is set for some exotic new locations. Saudi Arabia is spending tens of billions of dollars to draw in filmmakers to showcase its striking landscapes. That's quite a change for a country where, until recently, cinema was illegal. But first... In Turkey, a grand and grandly misguided economic experiment continues to bite. But Turks would be wise not to complain too much on social media. Yesterday, the banking regulator filed charges against more than two dozen people and accounts, including two former central bank governors, alleging that their criticism amounted to market manipulation. Online grousing is pretty clearly not the problem. Inflation has been rising for months. Anticipating yet more devaluation, those who can afford it have been lining up to buy food and fuel. One market trader in the southeastern city of Diyarbakir says in the evening bread costs four liras, then in the morning it's seven. In Istanbul, a resident says the Turkish currency has melted like butter. The root of the problem is President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's notoriously upside-down view on monetary policy, that high interest rates cause inflation. As he leans on the central bank, economic forces lean on the lira, and the spiral continues. So to stop it, Mr. Erdogan has another bright idea. Up until last week, the lira had lost nearly 50% of its dollar value in just two months. And that collapse was triggered largely by Mr. Erdogan's own mishandling of the economy, and specifically his decision to bring down interest rates, no matter the cost. Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent and is based in Istanbul. He has persistently defended the cuts, uh, which have brought the benchmark interest rate to 7% below the rate of inflation, and has pledged to stay the course. And then last week, on Monday, he announced a new and dramatic interventionist plan. It sounds on the basis of uh, Mr. Erdogan's economic wisdom uh, until recently that, that that should be a dangerous thing. What is this interventionist plan? Well, this new plan is a guarantee on Turkish deposits held in lira. It is a pledge that the Turkish government will compensate holders of lira deposits whenever the currency's depreciation tops the interest rate offered by their banks. 
Bundan sonra hiçbir vatandaşımızın kur daha yüksek olacak diye mevduatını Türk lirasından dövize geçirmesine ihtiyaç kalmayacak. But it is in fact an indirect interest rate hike indexed to the dollar and the exchange rate. For example, were the lira to slide by 30% against the dollar in a year, an account holder at a bank with a 14% deposit rate would pocket the difference courtesy of Turkey's treasury in addition to the return on her deposit. And and has that done anything to to stem the slides of the lira? In fact, it has. Um the lira has responded with a record uh, rebound erasing a month's worth of losses in under a day, albeit with generous help from Turkey's central bank. Uh, the move seems to have bought Mr. Erdogan, who had been facing severe political headwinds, and the lira, which had been turning into monopoly money, some time. But it has only obscured and perhaps heightened the risks to Turkey's economy. Um, this stopgap solution has for now reassured investors that Turkey's leader is aware of the need to rescue the lira. Um, the scheme's other virtue is that it may have prevented a run on the banks. Turks have been converting their savings to dollars at a record pace over the past month. And lately, some of them had even begun considering withdrawing their savings altogether. So in a sense, people with lira deposits then feel protected uh, by by basically government money. But that doesn't sound like a very sustainable solution in the long run if if the lira keeps on crashing. Well, the problem is that we can't really understand the impact of this new scheme uh, because it is being helped so generously uh, by currency interventions by the central bank. Um, in only the two days surrounding Mr. Erdogan's announcement, um, the central bank is believed to have sold about $7 billion um, in support of the lira uh, through public banks. Another concern is um, the burden that uh, this scheme will have on the treasury. Um, And this is a burden that will grow as long as the system is in place. Until now, it was Turkish depositors who had shouldered the risk of wild swings in the exchange rate. And from now on, it will be Turkish taxpayers. And that places Turkey's public finances at risk. And when last we spoke about Turkey's economy and how that's hitting Turkish taxpayers, Turkish citizens, it it sounded like a a relatively dire picture. I I presume nothing's changed on that score. Well, President Erdogan has insisted of late that a weak lira is actually a good thing for the Turkish economy and that it would um, help uh, drive growth by boosting exports, among other things. The problem is that most Turks seem to disagree. And in a recent poll, about two out of three said they could not meet their basic needs without taking out loans. A few days ago, I spoke with the staff of a restaurant in uh, Shishli, um, a neighborhood on Istanbul's European shore, and met a chef um, who had decided to stock up on a thousand diapers for his baby because he knew uh, that prices would rise and he bought his diapers, which now fill a large share of his apartment. In September, in the three months since, the price of these diapers um, has more than doubled. There's also concern that 
the currency depreciation is forcing millions of Turks to crash out of the middle class or the growth of the middle class is one of the big success stories um, of Mr. Erdogan's rule. Um, it has grown by millions over the past couple of decades, but now the size of that middle class is rapidly shrinking. So how do you see the, these latest moves then against the, the wider economic picture and, and where all of this is likely to go? Well, in the short term, um, Mr. Erdogan seems to have averted a doomsday scenario. But in the long term, the measures might actually add to Turkey's economic woes, in particular when it comes to inflation. Um, now, analysts expect inflation to reach anywhere from 30 to 50 percent in the first half of 2022, especially after a 50 percent increase in the minimum wage, uh, which was announced in December. So it seems that Mr. Erdogan has thrown a blanket over a fire that he himself started, but that the blanket itself might catch fire too. Piotr, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist aims to be a place for concise writing on important subjects from talented journalists. Meanwhile, at the University of Sussex in England, an unusual archive does, well, the opposite. For four decades, it's collected rambling letters on life's trivialities from literally anyone willing to contribute. The Mass Observation Project, and it really is massive, is guerrilla sociology intended to sample the moods and habits of a nation. The project was started by David Pocock, a professor at the University of Sussex in Brighton in the early 1980s. Tom Rowley writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. He advertised for correspondence from any walk of life. The more humdrum, the better, he said. And he recruited a big panel of correspondents who he decided to survey quarterly with uh, questions that he called directives. So one of them was was quite dry. It was a, a three-year study of the effects of inflation. But there was also junk mail, religion, people's dreams, shopping, television, uh, and, of course, uh, being Britain, gardening. And who was it that took him up on the offer? Who, who responded to these directives? A really wide bunch of people going through the archive. I found a nursery nurse from Rochdale in northern England. There was a retired bus driver, a carpenter from Cardiff in Wales, 
a retired travel agent clerk from Orpington. And one of my favourites was a guy called Eric Allison. A professor uh, contacting me. I liked his tone. And when you're in prison, contact with the outside is, um, is useful. Eric was quite a successful burglar. And he wrote from prison in Manchester starting in the mid-1980s. And Professor Pocock would write back to Eric. I suppose they came over time to be pen pals. As the correspondence continued, I would tell him about things that had happened in prison that are unique to prisons. He found it interesting. I enjoyed it. In a way, even though I was writing about prison, it took me out of the prison, if you like. The exchange gave Eric quite a bit of confidence in his writing. He told me that I could write, and that's nice, you know, from somebody who received a lot of uh, of correspondence. And sometime later, after another lengthy sentence, uh, he saw an advertisement for a prisons correspondent at the Guardian newspaper and applied and actually got the job. And I don't really think it would have happened without David Pocock and Mass Observation. So, yeah, I think of the project fondly, and in particular, of David. So what exactly was Professor Pocock trying to get out of all this? What, what did he think he was going to learn? Well, he was the anthropologist who was fascinated by the everyday and wanted to kind of peek behind the net curtains of Britain and delve into what he called real history. There was no attempt at making this a representative sample or of sort of collating everything in a neat kind of Excel spreadsheet. But even so, these letters offered something that just statistics alone couldn't. And you say it was a a bit of a scattershot approach. Is is there anything of Professor Pocock's proclivities in, in the directives? Yes, he was he was interested in geopolitics. There was a lot about sort of America and Russia, but also sort of humdrum daily activities. David was really interested in things like um, groceries and high streets. He isn't alive anymore, but a lady called Dorothy Sheridan, who started out as his secretary, took over. And that's when it begins to get really interesting. I think I brought it in a little bit more personal. Dorothy felt freer to ask about more intimate matters. One of her first directives was about the meaning of the word love. And she went on to probe the panel about ageing, menstruation, women and men, pleasure and bereavement. And why did you sort of, if you you like, kind of zoom in or or, or bring the lens even closer into into people's lives and into that interior? Because I was interested. Really, I was interested. I think that the um, the personal and political, for me, were interwoven. Mm. How people understood themselves. I felt that it was underdocumented. And over time, you see social attitudes shifting as well. One of the most stark examples is uh, in people's attitudes to gay people. You see in the 1980s, a panel being surveyed about the response to the AIDS crisis. And in some cases, writing things that, that we would today regard as sort of pretty horrific. But 
actually, so 20 years later, in some cases, the same people are writing in, in sort of quite positive ways about gay members of their own family. And you see a sort of remarkable social shift played out in microcosm. And so is this project still going? Yes, in fact, if anything, it's gathering momentum. Dorothy Sheridan retired in 2010, and an academic called Fiona Courage took over. And she and her team are still hard at it. In fact, they recruited a whole bunch of new observers during COVID-19. They had to close applications because they got so many new ones. And I guess that, you know, people had a lot of time on their hands to contribute to a project like this. But so more seriously, I think they probably also understood the value of contemporaneous accounts of everyday life, which I suppose during lockdown suddenly seemed freighted with significance. In a way, it's a parallel with my story. You know, I was in prison and... (laughs) An awful lot of people have been imprisoned in a different way, of course, uh, because of COVID. Eric Allison wasn't surprised to hear about how popular the project had been during COVID. So I would imagine that it's opened up a rich vein. But whatever the project's value is to researchers, it's just as valuable to the writers. One of my daughters said to me that when she was at university, when she was talking to her friends and the conversation came around to families, she would try and steer clear because invariably somebody would say, well, what did your dad do? And of course, her dad was a criminal. But she said to me, um, now I quite welcome such conversations because I can say my dad writes for The Guardian. I think as journalists, we can quite often get caught up in the drama of Westminster or Washington and sort of quote-unquote major events. And it's kind of quite easy to overlook the small p politics, if you like, the sort of little long-term changes in everyday life that can actually add up to quite profound social change. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Wow, welcome to Jeddah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. In December, the actor Hilary Swank took to the red carpet of the Red Sea Film Festival. Well, as we know, movies and storytelling changes lives. And while it also entertains and gives us something to relate to... And... Her appearance and the festival are part of a much wider effort by Saudi Arabia to lure Hollywood studios to the kingdom. That marks a big change in how the country deals with films. Saudi Arabia banned all cinema in the early 1980s under pressure from religious conservatives. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. But now it's making an unlikely pitch to be a Hollywood of the desert. And and what does that transformation look like? Well, a few years ago, Saudi Arabia began its new surprising embrace of legalized cinema. So in 2018, the first one opened. And since then, it's really been growing. It's got about 500 screens now. 
And people reckon that by about 2025, it could have the world's 10th biggest box office, which is not bad going considering that just a few years ago, it had no box office at all. And the next step in this, after growing its own domestic audiences, it wants to try and bring in foreign producers to film their own movies there. And already a few of them have taken the bait and, and are shooting there right now. So why the change of heart here? Why, why does Saudi now want a, a cinema industry? I think there's a few things going on. I mean, one reason is that they want to try and make their economy a bit less dependent on oil, which has sustained it for a very long time. Another one is that it's got a young population which is getting a bit restless in the face of political repression. And rather than give them new political rights, it's easier in some ways to give them more stuff to do. So we've got cinemas. They just recently staged the first Saudi Arabia Grand Prix. And the other thing is, of course, that its international reputation is justly dreadful. And by filming movies there, by inviting Hollywood stars there, it's just a way of kind of softening the country's international image a bit. And you said that to some degree, Hollywood types are already taking the bait. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I went there just recently and went up to a place called Alula, where they're filming a picture at the moment called Kandahar, which is a kind of big budget Hollywood film, stars Gerard Butler. So it's a kind of Hollywood seeming film set in Afghanistan, but being shot in Saudi Arabia. So we've got that. We've got Desert Warrior, another picture being shot uh, in the north of the country. Again, big budget thing, $140 million is the reported budget, starring Anthony Mackie, who is the new Captain America. So these are pretty serious Hollywood films. And people are coming there despite it being untested ground for for this kind of thing. There, There must be some kind of incentives here. Yeah, I think part of the pitch is the scenery, and it is spectacular. I was in the desert there, and you've got, from a location scout's point of view, everything they could want, really. You've got different types of desert. You've got, you know, I've become a real expert on different types of sand in recent days. You know, they've got the grey desert, which looks like Afghanistan, apparently. The red desert, which makes an ideal Mars. They've got desert, which is the kind of classic Lawrence of Arabia dunes and, and so on. So the other part of the incentive is money. Um, And just very recently, Saudi Arabia announced that it was going to be offering cash rebates of up to 40% of production spending for people who come to shoot feature films there, which is a huge, huge incentive. That's one of the world's most generous film subsidies. 40% rebate. Is that to say that at least at these early stages, the Saudi government is going to do this at a loss? It depends how well the films do. I mean, Hollywood and the movie business in general is always a lottery. If these are huge hits, then... It could work out. From Saudi Arabia's point of view, I suppose the country could break even if these big subsidies convince enough people to come to really set off a new industry. You know, the idea is that these guys come along and I, you know, I saw them operating there with their gigantic trailers. It brings in catering. It brings in all kinds of side industries doing the logistics. And I suppose the hope in Saudi Arabia is that by offering these subsidies, you help to spark an industry which generates lots of mini sub-industries. I think it's likely to say, though, that in the first instance, it's not going to be making money on this. Uh, To begin with, they're stumping up money as an investment with an eye on the future. So all of the incentives are there. Do you you think this this vision will come to pass, the, the Hollywood of the desert? I think it's not going to be easy. For one thing, getting people from a place like Los Angeles or London to move to Saudi Arabia for a few months to work is not always straightforward. I mean, it's a very different society. If you want to drink at the end of the day, that's not going to be easy. If you're gay, you're a criminal. If you're a woman, you still, despite recent legal changes, face a somewhat restricted existence. The political problems are difficult too. A lot of companies understandably don't want to be seen doing business with a country which has one of the worst human rights records in the world. But I think that from the point of view of the Saudi government, they already have managed to get a few big productions going in the country. And it gives them a chance to tell stories 
that they want to tell with their own spin on them. And I think in 2022, when this film Desert Warrior comes out, people will be surprised to see Captain America himself fighting in Saudi Arabia. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.